Hi, my name is Dr. Brendan McCarthy. I am the Chief Medical Officer of Protea Medical Center in Chandler, Arizona. Thank you so much for tuning in my podcast. Did you know in the 1880s you could buy cocaine cough drops from Sears and Roebuck from their catalog? Just mail them 50 cents. They'll mail you some cocaine-filled cough drops. True story. You were able to buy cocaine cough drops. You were able to buy cocaine for antidepressants. You were able to buy cocaine for toothaches, for headaches, for uh, low libido. (laughs) You had it. It was out there for the 1800s. And it was so available. And it was so present. I mean, even uh, there was a fascinating thing. I knew knew this back in the day, but now looking at it from context, it's interesting. Sigmund Freud... Huge proponent of cocaine in the 1880s. Huge. So from that platform of availability, by 1902, over 200,000 people in the United States of America were addicted to cocaine. And that addiction started causing some social upheavals. There was an unraveling of the, the social network here a little bit. And uh, society, So uh, excuse me, the, the social fabric, whatever. But you, you know what I'm talking about. So that by 1914, they had the Harrison Narcotic Act in order to try and stop this from happening, this addictive uh, compound from being so amazingly available to purchase. But not just cocaine. It was also morphine for PMS. So, so around that time, or a little bit before cocaine becoming so uh, in vogue in the States, we had opiates. You know, there's morphine uh, made its way into the States, and it was being marketed to women for PMS is being marketed to women for their cramps, for their mood changes, insomnia, all sorts of things. There was a huge percentage of women becoming addicted to opiates during that time. By the mid-19th century, 60 to 70% of the people who were addicted to uh, opium, they were uh, mainly women, primarily white. They're from 25 to 45 years old. They were uh, middle class, mainly housewives, but they're also teachers and also prostitutes involved. Uh, nurses and also doctors' wives. And this is from Hastings Law Journal. I was reading this article. Why? Well, we could look at this from from face value and say, oh, yeah, well, you know, cocaine, that will help with pain. It is true, and it's used in dentistry still, believe it or not. I have a friend who's a dentist, and I didn't believe it. I looked it up. It's true. They use cocaine in dentistry still, where they just put a little cocaine on your gums and it numbs it out, I guess. That's that's why they use it. But, um, yeah, I've never gone to the dentist got cocaine before, so I... You know, but we'd say that, okay, you know, dentists would use it. And I'm sure cocaine has some other benefits. I, I don't know what I could say. Okay. I could see back then how they're like, this is a wonderful drug for these things. All right. And morphine for cramps. Sure. I can, I can see a lot of women do have severe pain. I'm, I shouldn't laugh about that. I'm laughing because how ridiculous it is now looking back in hindsight, because the solution is much worse than the problem. You know, giving someone uh, morphine, for menstrual cramps is really not a good idea. There's other things we could do now. But back then there wasn't very little. And so I can understand that. I get that. Still, you know, why? What what was the driver here? Was it those things? Was it because there's a medical benefit to these people? Let me throw something in here that's interesting. And many of you know this fact. Cocaine was an ingredient of Coca-Cola when it first came out. Because guess what? It contained cocaine. It started off as anything but soft. We all think of it as a soft drink today, but it had quite a punch to it. French wine of cocoa was a heady mix of Bordeaux red wine mixed with caffeine and coca leaf extract. But at $1 a bottle and tasting bitter, it was a niche market. 
he knew that he could make more money if he could sell a regular beverage at a soda fountain because patent medicines were sold a dollar a bottle. Why not sell something multiple drinks for five cents each? Pemberton went about adapting the bitter-tasting medicine in the back room of his pharmacy. What you have to do is mask it with a big old pile of sugar, which is what you find in a lot of soft drinks and energy drinks. And to sell to adults and children alike, he removed the alcohol. No one thought that cocaine was a problem. It wasn't deemed to be uh, a terrible drug, and it, was, it wasn't. It was legal. So he removed the alcohol, but he kept the cocaine in. So let's put that into the equation for a moment together and think about it. Why did they do this then? If, if, if they're putting also in Coca-Cola, what was this? What was the idea behind it? In my opinion, in my experience and my research, seems to have been the idea you can create repeat customers quickly and easily. That's a part of business. If you get someone physically addicted to your product, they're going to come back. It saves you the money of advertising. They just keep coming back for your product. I'm not trying to be against business right now. And I know it's going to sound like I am a little bit, but especially in this episode, I'm sound like a lot of it. And I want to start by saying, you know, business in my mindset is when you come up with an idea that's amazing and cool and a product that you want to make, like someone who's like Otis Spunkmeyer with his cookies. You know what I mean? It's like, this is your vision. Or, you know, here's a good story. I was thinking about whether I should use this or not, but I'm going to use it. My wife's mom and dad came up with their own business. You know, my mother-in-law um, pressed. You took this class on how to press flowers in glass. You know, and, and, and make these little things with them. I make these little little display things with them. And you know, when 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 her husband came home, he's like, "Wow, that's pretty cool. We could probably sell those." So that's what they did. They built these beautiful, you know, stained glass and flowers pressed in there with like Bible sayings or just like inspirational quotes or any number of other things. And they went down to Pike Place Market in Seattle. They lived north of the city. They would drive down there uh, and they would set up, set up an open air stand with the fishmongers across the way from Starbucks. It's like the early 1970s when they started this. And they would sell these <laughs> flowers pressed in glass and they used it to support a family. And that to me is good business because it was a vision, it was an idea, something great something you want to pursue, something you could do that's amazing. And, and, and you can support your family with it and you pursue your passion. That's good business to me. This is different, what I'm about to talk about. This is not that. This is business that uses something called the hook model. Now, if you pause this video right now and you just Google the term hook model, you realize how prevalent the hook model is in business and how unabashedly proud these people are of using it. So Brendan, what's the hook model? Exactly what it sounds like. The hook model is a four-phase process that creates customer habit and, and in some cases addiction, okay? It starts off with you have an active trigger. And let's go back to the cocaine and my cough drops, okay? Your trigger is I have a cough. Sears and Roebuck, they're pretty good people. I trust them. Or this is my, my local pharmacy. I trust them. Or this is my psychiatrist, Sigmund Freud. <laughs> I trust him somehow. I don't, I don't think you should. Uh, Freud. Anyway, I, my trigger is I have a cough. I have a need. This is the medication to be given to me. So I'm going to get that. That's the initial trigger with it. Okay? What's the action? The action we're going to have is they're going to pursue it. They're going to consume it. They're going to use it. That's the second phase. So one is a trigger. And then that's the action. The second is the action of it. And three is the reward. This is the important part. The reward has to be variable, where it 
gives you benefit, but not perfect. In other words, every time you do it, every time you consume it, it kind of works, sometimes better than others, but it's that variable part that keeps pulling you back for it more and more. Okay, so remember that. I'll come back to that a little bit later. And then finally is the acquisition part. How do you get the customer engagement for them to come back and buy more of it? How do you increase their, their, their accessing of your medication and, and, and using it or your product and using it? So let's put this into the equation now for cocaine and the cough drops. The trigger is the cough. The trigger is I advertise it. You got it. Once you take it and you have that reward, not just your cough went away. If your cough didn't go away, you're like, I feel amazing. This is the best thing that's ever happened to me. I didn't even know they were high on cocaine. They had no idea. They're just taking cough medicine. But man, they feel the best they've ever felt in their lives. Look at that reward. And then they're like, I got to get more of this. Sears and Roebuck, by the way, here's our catalog. And we have all these other things here to buy too. That was the action. That's the initiating of it. Now, the future triggers are no longer going to be the cough. This is another important thing. The future triggers are no longer the cough. The future triggers are the loss of that reward over time, you crave the reward again. So the trigger is, is you need the reward again. You need that little boost from it, that little thing that that trigger was, that, that that item was giving you. So the trigger becomes an internal trigger where you feel like you need more of that item. In this case, cocaine, or in the other one, as I mentioned, morphine. It's so awful. This is, biz- this is a type of business. And like I said, they are wicked proud of it. Further, when it comes to this, it's no longer making a business because I want to do something that has an effect that's great and I want to do something awesome and I want to, you know, make the best cookies in the world or I want to make these pressed flour things to support my family or any number of reasons why so many of us go into business. This is all about how can I generate the most money possible? I need to get the most money out of this as I possibly can. I need to control all my expenses, all my costs, lower all my expenses down in order to get the most return on my my income, my, excuse me, my, my, my investment into this business. The thing about the product is it doesn't have to be awesome anymore. It just has to be addictive. It doesn't have to be something amazing. It has to be addictive. Let's talk about tobacco. Let's bring it to them because that's more of a modern day version of this, okay? Let's talk about tobacco and even the Sackler family with, with, with Oxycontin. Okay, let's move into this. In the back of your head, you're like, where are you going with this, Brendan? <laughs> Stay with me. Stay with me, please. Stay with me. This is important. And I promise you, I will bring you somewhere with this. It's, it's good. It's going to be good. The tobacco industry and, and or like the Sacklers, they needed to make a product that could not be refused. How often does your job call you out of bed in the middle of the night? Well, if you were a doctor, it would be often. And generally, there isn't much time to spare. Coffee, doctor? Oh, fine. Have a camel with your coffee. Thanks. You know, this night work's kind of rough, isn't it? That's right. But a camel's always a pleasure. Yes, folks, the pleasing mildness of a camel is just as enjoyable to a doctor as it is to you or me. In a nationwide survey, doctors in all branches of medicine were asked, what cigarette do you smoke, doctor? The brand named most was Camels. Tens of thousands of doctors, general practitioners, surgeons, specialists, Doctors in every branch of medicine were included. And according to this nationwide survey, more doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette. Try camels yourself, the cigarette so many doctors enjoy. Tobacco companies, what they did over time was they started manipulating the the nicotine content 
and they manipulated the way nicotine was delivered through the cigarette to make it more addictive. They manipulated it over time. That's proven. And there'll be citations in the video on YouTube that you'll be able to look at and see. I mean, I cite this. I did a lot of research with this because I find it so fascinating. I've been reading about this for years now. I'm finally glad to take something I've been spending a lot of time studying and applying it in, in, in this setting. So they manipulated to make it much more potent and much more addictive. That's how tobacco worked. Same with the Sackler family. They really wanted to make it where this compound would sell and it would move off the shelves. That's what their goal was. When they manipulate this, and the thing is important, the difference between habit and addiction is, is harm. Habits are not harmful. Get up in the morning, brushing my teeth, that's a healthy habit. Get up in the morning, go to the gym, healthy habit. Get up in the morning and, 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 and drinking eight shots of espresso, not so healthy habit, you know? And so there's a healthy habit and not a healthy habit. With someone, when you give them a compound, say like caffeine, and you have a cup of coffee in the morning, and you know, just you have one cup of coffee, we're fine. Okay, there's nothing wrong with that medically. I'm going to tell you that now, in my medical opinion. If you keep increasing it, though, over time, it will become unhealthy. Some of us are more addictive to things than others. That's known. And some people it takes longer to become addicted to something like nicotine or, or alcohol or, or cocaine or heroin or any of those things. It takes a little bit longer for them. That doesn't mean they're not able to become addicted. It just means they haven't hit that threshold yet. But if you take someone, you give them nicotine long enough or tobacco or any of those, excuse me, nicotine or, or alcohol, or any of those things, over time, they will become addicted. It doesn't matter. It is part of biology. It's just some of us have a higher threshold than others, okay? And there's no shame in that either. Now that we've gone over the fact that nicotine and, 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 and the tobacco industry has used nicotine to manipulate it to make it more addictive, we talked about how uh, cocaine has been in cough drops and now and in, and in Coca-Cola originally and, and opiates were being released for women for, for PMS. Now we're starting to see how it was being added to it or adjusted to it to create the product to become more addictive in order to generate more sales. I think we can all agree on that. So... It should not come to a surprise to anybody right now that in the mid-1980s, when Big Tobacco started purchasing food-producing companies, that they would take the same playbook and put it into big food. And that's what they did. More businesses are cutting back on selling tobacco. With large American tobacco companies, aka Big Tobacco, losing sales, they realized it was time to move on to more profitable industries. So, they bought big food. Back in 1963, tobacco giant R.J. Reynolds purchased Hawaiian Punch from Pacific Hawaiian Products Company. They also expanded to sell Del Monte fruits and vegetables, A1 steak sauce, and Kentucky Fried Chicken. In 1985, R.J. Reynolds also bought Nabisco Brands, Inc., a cookie manufacturer known for products like Chips Ahoy, Ritz Crackers, and Oreo Cookies. Altria Group is the parent company of tobacco company Philip Morris. Altria acquired Kool-Aid and Jell-O from General Foods in 1985. They also acquired Kraft Foods in 1988. With it came products like Capri Sun and Tang. Altria Group eventually bought Nabisco from R.J. Reynolds in 2000. This article that was published July 13th of this year 
was how U.S. tobacco companies selectively disseminated hyperpalatable foods into the U.S. food system, empirical evidence and current implications. And that was published in the journal Addiction. What happened was they started manipulating those foods. And what they did was they made them more hyperpalatable by adjusting the salt, sugar, and fat. Hyperpalatable foods are a, a serious threat to our health. As bad as cocaine, as bad as opiates. I know some people say, oh, opiates, and, and I know, I know the opiate crisis in America has killed so many people, and you're right. The big food industry is also killing people. It's just doing it slower. Oxycontin ruins lives much faster. I know that. And, and fentanyl, all these ruin lives much faster. I know that. There is a um, commonality they have because both of them were being generated by people who their only goal was to increase sales using the hook model, starting as habit and then turning into addiction. So from the 1990s till now, Food has been changed. They have adjusted the salt, the sugar, and the fat in these foods to make them more hyperpalatable so it's more difficult for you to say no to it. It's more difficult for you to stop eating these foods. You notice that. I mean, anybody who eats processed food will tell you that. And a lot of us don't even understand what processed food is because we just it's so ubiquitous now. It's just food, Brendan. No. Anything that's made not by you is processed. It just is even if it's made, um, it seems healthy and organic or, or gluten-free. <laughs> that, does, that does not mean it's healthy. Anytime they can manipulate the salt, sugar, and fat, they will because it's business. No longer is it someone who wants to build something beautiful because they love making cookies or they love whatever it is that they make. You know, their, 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 their tomato sauce they grew up making and now they're going to bottle their own and put it out there like Prego. Look how much sugar is in Prego. Um, and then for all you Prego lovers out there, let's go to Prego, a traditional, right? I would love to see some extra virgin olive oil or something like that in here. We start off with tomato puree. Once again, the inferior puree, not the whole stewed tomatoes. Canola oil. So these are the two only bad ingredients here, but it's canola oil, terrible for you, and sugar in the tune of four. So one teaspoon of sugar in half a cup. Really bad news here, you guys. These are things we become addicted to without knowing. This is why I'm bringing this up. When my patients present to clinic and their blood sugar is high and they're overweight and they can't control this, me just telling them you got to cut your calories is not doing good work. Me telling them to cut their calories and saying you got to go down to like, you know, a thousand calories a day or whatever, whatever the calculation is, because there's a calculator I do. You know, this is the ideal calories you should be doing for weight loss, and you can do all the math on that all you want. But if you're not addressing the addiction on the patient, you're getting no benefit. It won't work. Tell someone who's a smoker, you're smoking 20 cigarettes a day, let's drop you down to 15 cigarettes a day. See how long that lasts. It doesn't, by the way. Tell an alcoholic, instead of drinking whatever, six-pack, say, which I know is light for an alcoholic, but instead of doing six-pack, let's drink four. How long will that last? Never. Because you did not touch the addiction. Telling patients to cut down on calories does not solve this problem, even a little bit. Let me go back to my presentation a little bit. That was just my little call to you of like, why I'm doing this. How is this going to end? How is this going to end? 
Well, let's look at the model of cocaine, right? And, 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 and morphine back in the day, they just basically made it outlawed, you know, or hyper-controlled for cocaine. Cause I think you can still get it from your dentist. Still, that's kind of weird. So they control it that way. Big tobacco, other companies, what do they do? They could do heavy taxation. I'm from the East Coast, grew up on the East Coast, and they had sin taxes on things. I know different states have that still, where they put a heavier tax on something uh, because it's considered to be unhealthy. So alcohol, tobacco, those sorts of things, put a sin tax on it. That doesn't really work. It didn't work before, and it doesn't work. It's, a, it's just a, it's a way for people to say, oh, look, we're doing something to handle this bad thing here. We're going to raise the tax on it and make it more difficult to acquire it. But that money ultimately goes into the state's coffers, and usually they don't spend it to help people getting off that food or that addictive compound that they're on. They just get more money from it, and it just keeps going. Age restrictions with tobacco and alcohol, you know, that didn't work. It doesn't really work that well. It works a little bit, but not great. Still, it's important to keep them because we know that when children or people who are young start these addictive compounds early, they're going to be more easily stuck with it long term. So we don't want people starting tobacco or alcohol at an early age or any addictive compound. We don't want to start at an early age. Anything that could be habit-forming that could become an addiction, you have to be cautious with children. We can put warnings on labels. That didn't work. Tobacco. And now they're trying to make more creative ones where they're, they're, they're really graphic, crazy-looking graphics on there. And I know Australia was kind of at the forefront of that. I think that's great. I just don't know how effective that is. I, I really, I'm sorry. I did not look at the research on that one. So that's, you know, one way of dealing with it. Controlling the way it's being marketed to people, when it can be marketed. Again, that's helping prevent children from getting exposed to it. And that's good because if you think about it, and I grew up in the 1970s, every single cartoon I watched Saturday morning had commercials for uh, sugary breakfast cereals. Kids, kids, cookies for breakfast? But we love cookies. Well, why didn't you say so? Oh, you can't have cookies for breakfast, but you can have cookie crisps. You can have that crunchy cookie taste with lots of chocolatey chips. Looks like little cookies. But it's a cereal and part of a complete breakfast, so just remember this. No, you can't have cookies for breakfast. But you can have cookie crisps. Cookie crisp cereal. You can have cookie and for you know candy if you love almonds almonds yeah really love almonds i do i do i do you'll love the mars almond bar so many almonds you get an almond in every bite an, an almond in every bite right yeah plus real milk chocolate so get an almond in every bite mars almond bar and now mars sprint bar and mars crunchy chocolate bar the best chocolate on earth comes from mars or for mcdonald's or for one of those things good morning america come join us for breakfast you you're the one we're fixing breakfast for you you you're the one at McDonald's, we're fixing a hot, delicious breakfast just for you. Fresh scrambled eggs, hot cakes and sausage, our own egg McMuffin, lots of Danish pastries. Try them. At McDonald's. We do it all for you. And the idea is just to create brand recognition, brand loyalty in these kids. So I'm glad that they're not marketing these things to younger people. So that's, that's a good thing, too. It still doesn't work well. It works a little bit. So, and then the other one is large lawsuits. You know, you just sue the company out of existence. You didn't treat the problem. The problem is the compound and the way we're dealing with it, okay? It just doesn't always work these ways. I mean, look at the Sackler family. I mean, they sued them out of business, I guess, to some degree, but they haven't really um, 
solved this problem yet. What works? I looked at this infographic that, you know, Justin will put up here and it looks up the smoking rates and how they fell from 1954 to 2018. And I like looking at this because if you look at it in 1954 with this graphic, you're going to see, you know, the smoking rate was about 45% of Americans. And now it's down to 16% of Americans. And if you look at that, you realize 1954, they weren't telling people to stop smoking. But that's when people started realizing that smoking was not good for you. There started to be some whispers out there. And that's when it starts to drop. And every time there was more news about how tobacco was bad for us, you saw more and more drops because people were stopping doing this because they understood this is not something you should be doing. It wasn't the lawsuits. I mean, they, the, the amount the lawsuits affected it, the amount that regulation affected the tobacco industry, it's more about the people on the streets becoming aware of how dangerous this is and self-regulating themselves. That's my argument on this. This is a smoking machine. It is used to test the nicotine and tar content of various brands of cigarettes. This is a smoking machine too, although he probably doesn't realize it. His lungs are also collecting tars and nicotine. One thing about this machine, it will never get heart disease or cancer from smoking. Can this machine make the same claim? For information, ask your heart association. So I believe the best way of dealing with food addiction is similar to tobacco addiction. We need to make sure people understand. We need to make sure they understand that when they buy processed foods, they're buying food that was generated in a way to make them addicted, just like tobacco. There's no difference. The first step is awareness and education. And the second step is going to be action. I encourage you guys to read things like that book, Salt, Sugar, Fat. It's a great book. Every year, the average American eats as much as 33 pounds of cheese. That's up to 60,000 calories and 3,100 grams of saturated fat. So why do we eat so much cheese? Mainly it's because the government is in cahoots with the processed food industry. And instead of responding in earnest to the health crisis, they've spent the past 30 years getting people to eat more. This is the story of how we ended up doing just that. Brilliant book. That was a really formative book for me to read. And I want you to start looking at processed foods for what they are. These are things that have been manipulated in order to manipulate you to become more addicted to it. And then to the best of your ability, quit. The thing about quitting smoking for people and nicotine is the, the more they go after it, the more they try and quit, the easier it gets to the point where they do stop. You may think to yourself, I can't, Brendan, I can't give up my chips or I can't give up my whatever it is that you eat. And I promise you, you can. I promise you, you can. It just takes dedication and time. We will do more podcasts on this in the future because this is important. Um, this is something we actively treat in my practice. This is something I actively work with with my patients. And uh, I'll give you some of the things that work well with us in clinic at, at uh, future episodes. So thank you so much for tuning in. I hope this was helpful. Please like, share, and subscribe. And please comment. These comments mean a lot to me. This was meant to be kind of an overview episode today about you know the food and how it's been manipulated there will be more out there please comment let me know what you're interested in with this let me know what would be helpful for you and uh, i will work on that so thanks again for tuning in and i'll see you next time
There's a snake in my boot. There's cocaine in my cough drops. Did you know? 